And we are in Colossians chapter 3, and we're going to be looking only at verse 19 this morning, Christ-likeness and husbands. Uh, but as we've seen in previous weeks, God's commands to husbands uh, really flow from his commands to all believers, even as we see in the whole context of chapter 3. And he's commanding husbands to love their wives and to not be harsh with them. And so I want to read actually beginning in verse 12, and then I'm going to go through verse 19 in order to give a, a picture, a description of how all Christians are to be loving one another. And what we find in verses 12 through 17, leading up to verses 18 and 19, uh, really informs and, and leads to an understanding of the nature of this love that husbands are to have in particular for their wives. So let's hear the eternal and inerrant word of our living God. I'm going to start in verse 12 of chapter 3 and then lead, read through verse 19. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And thus says the Lord God. And let me lead us in prayer as we ask his help. Father, we do pray that you would help us now. Help us, even as Paul prayed in the first chapter of Colossians, help us to be filled with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that we might walk in a manner worthy of you and be fully pleasing to you, that we would be bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of you, that we might be strengthened with all power according to your glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. And that we would be giving thanks to you, you who have qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. You have delivered us from the domain of darkness and you have transferred us to the kingdom of your beloved son. The one in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of our sins. So help us now to embrace and to understand and to live out the things that you call us to for your glory and for the blessing of others. Amen and amen. Well, most of us know that getting any kind of dental work is never fun or pleasant. And I know I refer to dentists occasionally by way of illustration, but I guess it just has made an impression in my own life. But we know and we understand that going to the dentist and having work done is just never fun or pleasant. But we also know that it is necessary if we want to have healthy teeth. 
And so whether it's getting crowns or cavities filled or getting a root canal or some other kind of work, there can be a lot of painful poking and drilling before refreshing healing comes. Well, I want to let you know, for you men in general this morning, and for any of you who are husbands in particular, God's word to you today may be a bit like going to the dentist. In other words, God may have some painful poking and drilling to do in your own soul before sweet healing comes. But I want you to make no mistake, men, that God is for you. And he wants your soul to be healthy and happy and whole. And he wants you to be a joyful and thankful man and a husband in particular if you're married who overflows with love and blessing and goodness to your wife and to many others. Now, our text this morning in verse 19 of chapter 3, it comes within uh, what's referred to as a household code that begins in verse 18. And as we've seen, it goes through chapter 4, verse 1. And in this whole passage, Paul is explaining what following Jesus should look like in families. And his main point in this entire section is that every family member is to do their part in exalting Christ. Because of Christ's supremacy and because of his sufficiency, because he is infinitely worthy to be trusted and worshipped and obeyed, in the context of a family, every family member must do their part in following and exalting him. And Paul begins then in verses 18 and 19 with husbands and wives. And as I've mentioned, this flows from God's will and purposes for all of us who are his people in general and even as we live life in his family as the family of God in the church. But in, verses 18, in verse 18 through uh, the beginning of chapter 4, he's talking specifically about biological families. So it's all interconnected with life in the church as well. Now, as I shared last week when we looked at verse 18 and what God says specifically to wives, uh, these commands, of course, are going to be most applicable to those of you who are wives and husbands. But all of us need to understand these truths. God's loving commands for husbands and wives, as I said, flow from his loving commands for all Christians, even as we see this earlier in chapter 3. And he's describing life in the kingdom of God, the body of Christ. Or as one commentator has said, it's the community of God's new creation. And what we find there is that every believer, every man and woman who is a believer, we're to live in mutual submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ, whether we're married or whether we're single. And thus we're to pray for, we're to encourage, we're to affirm, and we're to come alongside of all of our brothers and sisters in Christ as we all seek to know and to follow Christ together. And so it's important to be reminded of that broader context so that we, especially who are husbands and wives, uh, that we don't, as, as Terry alluded to when he prayed earlier, that we don't weaponize these passages to become an instrument of attacking our brothers and sisters. 
or more specifically, husbands, that you don't weaponize the commands to a wife uh, to, in order to attack your wife or vice versa. In other words, this is not a time, wives, to be nudging your husbands any more than last week was a time for husbands to be nudging their wives. We all have enough of our own matters to take care of. We should pray for and come alongside one another. So don't let these become weapons, but rather means by which we know how to pray and care for one another. Well, so last week we looked at verse 18 where God calls wives to be Christ-like by willingly submitting to their husbands. Now, verse 19 which is also very direct, just as verse 18 is. Here's the command. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And so we want to explore what this means and why this is necessary and essential and what this looks like in daily married life. So men in general, and husbands in particular, maybe kind of settle into that dentist's chair as the Lord seeks to work in all of our souls. So the command here is very straightforward, and here's the big idea. Here's the main point within this command. It's very straightforward. Husbands, be Christ-like by actively loving your wives. Husbands, be Christ-like, which is to say exalt and exemplify Jesus Christ. Be Christ-like by actively loving your wives. And you notice there in verse 19, the command involves both a positive and a negative aspect. Positive, positively, husbands, here's what you must do. Love your wife. And then the negative, here's what you must not do. Do not be harsh with her. So there's a two-sided aspect to this command, a two-sided obligation. One positive, one negative. Something to embrace, something to avoid. And within this two-sided obligation, I actually want to highlight five specific ways that you who are husbands are to love your wife. And if you're not a husband here this morning, as I said, be praying for those who are and be coming alongside to encourage in these things. But I want to really highlight these five specific ways that are bound up within both this positive and negative aspect of what Paul says in verse 19. So here's the first specific way, husbands, to love your wife. First of all, you are to love your wife constantly. You are to love your wife constantly. Husbands, love your wives. The imperative that is there is in the present tense. And it means that your love is to be constant, it's to be continual, it is to be never-ending. And this means, husbands, that there is never a moment, there is never a second in your marriage when you are not to be loving your wife. This means that God calls you to love your wife 24-7, 365 days a year for the rest of your life. This means from the second that you wake up in the morning until the moment that you fall asleep at night, you're to be loving your wife. In Christ and under his gracious lordship, your wife is to be your number one priority all of the time for the rest of your life. 
It certainly doesn't mean that you don't love others, including children if you have children or other, other people. We understand that. But there is a unique priority that is to be constant in the love of your wife. Your love for others, including your children, is second to and must flow from your constant love from your wife. And brothers, this means there's no vacation. This means that when you come home from work, you don't get to check out from also loving your wife, that that's kind of your own time. No, it's constant. And the force of the imperative that it is present tense brings that out. It means that everything that you do, everything you are, every ambition and desire you might have must be oriented around this duty to love your wife constantly. Constantly. It's evident. Well, that's the first specific way. Here's the second specific way to love your wife. Husbands, love your wife deliberately. Love her deliberately, which is to say, be proactive. Be intentional in loving your wife. Now, the command clearly implies that you must be deliberate and intentional in fulfilling the command. Loving your wife, men, doesn't just happen. It requires hard work. It requires effort. It requires sacrifice to love your, li- love your wife well. And so it implies and it means that if you're going to be deliberate and proactive and intentional in loving her, you need to be praying about that. You need to be planning. You need to be purposing to love your wife. And as the head of your home, which is your God-given calling and responsibilities, that is God's design, you're to lead your wife in love. And to be deliberate about this. And to be the leader means just that. You lead. And that means that you take the initiative. You take the initiative to deliberately and intentionally love your wife. Now, certainly, it would imply and mean that that you should be soliciting the involvement and the skill and the counsel and the abilities and the perspective of your wife as you seek to lead. As we're going to see, we're not talking about a, a crass, harsh, dominating kind of leadership. It's a servant leadership that is like Christ. But it's leadership, and it means you take the initiative. For every one of us who, are a man, who, who is a man in general, and for husbands in particular, we need to embrace the reality that leadership is not an option. It's simply not an option. This is part of our DNA. This is part of the way that God has made us in his image to love and to lead in that love and to serve in that love and to take responsibility and to take initiative and to be deliberate. And so we need to be doing this by God's grace. We need to love our wives and and we need to love them spiritually and relationally and affectionately and emotionally and practically. One author has said this, quote, a biblical leader is a servant who by God's grace and by his own example takes others further into the will and the ways of God, end quote. We set an example, we set a pace, and we strive to do this deliberately in big ways and in small ways, in spiritual matters and in practical matters to show that 
we love our wives and to help them know that we love them. And this means more than just promising them that, that we're willing to die for them. That's a good thing and a wonderful thing, but it also means we love them on a daily basis in deliberate ways. The story is told uh, by one writer of one wife who rightly told her husband, Dear, I know that you're willing to die for me. You've told me that many times, but while you're waiting to die, could you just fill in some of the time helping me maybe dry the dishes and maybe change the kids' diapers or maybe put the toilet seat down a time or two and, and maybe try to listen to me and understand me? Could you do those things while you're waiting to die for me? We get the point, right? It's easy to make grandiose claims and grandiose promises, but God wants us to be deliberate in loving our wives in a daily, specific kind of way. And there's all kinds of practical ways that we could think about this in being deliberate in taking the initiative, opening doors for our wives and uh, praying for her and with her on a regular basis reading scripture or good books with her, listening to sermons uh, together, taking the initiative to be faithfully involved in the life of the local church as God has designed, which among other things means being present, even as you're present this morning. I'm so thankful that you're here this morning. But other times when the church gathers, you should be taking the initiative to be leading your wife, leading your children, if you have them, to be gathering as well. It's one of the most fundamental ways of leading our family spiritually. To love them deliberately means that we, we study our wives and learn of them, their personalities, their moods, their strengths, their weaknesses, their joys and challenges, their fears, their anxieties, their discouragements, and what things encourage them. It means that we strive to take an interest in her interest. It means we encourage them with words of appreciation and gratitude for specific ways in which they have blessed us. Maybe it means sending notes of encouragement occasionally or flowers or gifts and not just when you've done something wrong. Maybe especially not when you've done something wrong. That could be pretty shallow, right? But when it's just because you love her and you want to encourage her and let her know that. It means giving her regular time and attention and being very disciplined to avoid distractions such as, just for instance, your smartphone. Not looking at texts or emails or the latest app or what's going on in the sports, sports world, but listening and being engaged and being attentive to her. There's all kinds of different ways, but you get the idea. To love her deliberately, to plan, to pray, to purpose to do so on a regular, daily, moment-by-moment -moment kind of basis. And to not make excuses to not be passive, to not be negligent, to not be lazy, but to love your wife constantly and to love your wife deliberately, taking the initiative. Well, this leads to a third way to love your wife that we see and that really comes out of the, the text. And I would say it this way, husband, love your wife Christianly. Love your wife Christianly. And this point also gets to some of the nitty-gritty details of what this love is and what this love looks like and the goal that this love pursues. And by making this point that we're to love our wives Christianly, 
It's vital to see that God is the one who defines and informs the nature of this love. In other words, you don't define and inform the nature of this love. The world certainly does not inform and define the nature of this love. Even your dear wife doesn't inform and define the nature of this love. God himself defines and informs the nature of this love because God himself is love in the fullness of his holiness. And so this is not just an emotional thing or a sentimental thing or any other aspect of the world's love. It may have echoes of that in certain ways, but it is a holy love found and displayed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so to love our wives as God intends is to love them not only constantly and deliberately, but also Christianly. It's interesting, in the godless pagan culture of the first century, which is much like the godless pagan culture of our own century, but in that first century time when Paul was writing, this duty for husbands to love their wives was radical because the culture viewed wives in that day as being inferior to their husbands. And husbands were seen to be the domineering rulers of the home, the manager, the king of the home. But in Christ's kingdom, he's the only king. And husbands are called to be much more than just effective or efficient household managers. We're called to be leaders in love. Called to be leaders in love. That's what makes this command so radical in Paul's day, even as it is in our own day. Now, Paul here referred to love earlier in the book of Colossians. Back in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, the very beginning of the letter, he says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. And he's talking there to all believers. He's thanking God for the evidence of his work in their lives by the love that they have for all the saints. A little bit later, down in verse 8, he says that his co-worker Epaphras had brought report of the Colossians' love in the Spirit. And then over in chapter 2, verse 2, he shares his burden for believers to be knit together in love. And then in what I read earlier in chapter 3, verses 12 to 17, Paul is describing what this love looks like in action. And I want you to hear this again, and I want to personalize it and specify it in particular for husbands. In other words, verses 12 to 17, again, applies to all believers, but husbands own this in particular as it informs what Paul means when he says, love your wives. So husbands, verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. If you belong to Christ, you are chosen of God. You are holy. You are beloved by him. Husbands, have a compassionate heart. Be kind. Have humility. Be meek and patient. Husbands, bear with your wife. And if if you have a complaint against her, forgive her. As the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive husbands. And he says in verse 14, above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in harmony. 
And husbands, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And husbands, be thankful. And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly and teach and admonish others in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, husbands, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Do you see how this sets the tone and the focus and the, the full nature of this kind of love that Paul is talking about? This is unique, spirit-empowered Christian love. And it's the overflow of God's holy love in Christ. And this is what God's holy love in Christ looks like in the lives of his people who are chosen, who are holy and beloved. And so husbands, for you and for me, this is what our constant, deliberate love for our wives should increasingly look like. And the goal of this love is for the greatest blessing, for the greatest spiritual, eternal good of the beloved. Which for husbands, that means for your wife. This is Christian love. You know, there's a lot of other descriptions and pictures of this love throughout the New Testament. Perhaps one of the most famous is in 1 Corinthians 13. And again, think about this, men, as husbands with your wife. Love is patient and kind. Husband loves does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Husband, your love is to bear all things, to believe all things, to hope all things, and to endure all things. Brothers, this is what it means to love your wife Christianly, along with constantly and deliberately. It means laying your life down for your wife and for her greatest good and doing that for the rest of your life life. And at this point, let me just say this. If you're a married man here today, or if you're any person for that matter who just thinks, I don't really care about obeying God, and I don't really care about striving to love in the way that God calls me to love, and, and if you're a husband, you're saying, I don't care to love my wife the way uh, you're talking about, Maybe you're saying to yourself, you know, that's just not me. I'm not going to change. I'm just the way I am. You can kind of take it or leave it. Can I just say to you, friend, if that's your attitude, you're not a Christian, which is to say you're under the wrath of God, which is to say you are on your way to hell. Because the Spirit of God within a person, if a person has been born of God, has, has come to faith in Christ, even though none of us do it perfectly, we all acknowledge we fail. We all acknowledge we're struggling. We sin. There's all kinds of things that, that we're desiring to grow in. But if you're saying, I don't care about any of this, you're not a Christian. You don't know God. In fact, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, John says there, if we don't love, we don't know God. And so this is a barometer. This is a means of evaluating whether or not we even belong to him. And I would plead with you, if that's the case, repent and come to faith in Christ and know the forgiveness of your sins and eternal life in him. But friends, we are, especially as husbands, to love our wives constantly, deliberately, 
Christianly, and this leads to the fourth way I would highlight, and that is to love your wife Christ-exaltingly. To love her Christ-exaltingly. I'm not sure if that's a legitimate word or phrase, but you get the intent. It hopefully works. And this, of course, flows from the things that we've previously seen. This is a distinct and unique holy love of God revealed in Jesus Christ, known and experienced and empowered by his spirit. And it's a love that ultimately seeks to exalt Christ. Remember what he says there in verse 17 at the end of of that portion that then leads into this uh, household code. He says in verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Do you see how all-encompassing and Christ-exalting this is? And husbands, how for you and I, this informs how we are to love our wives. And I would just underscore what I said a bit earlier, that this means that our, all of our ambitions, all of our motivations, all of our desires, our prayers, our labors, our time, all are be to, to be oriented around magnifying and exalting the Lord Jesus Christ rather than seeking praise honor, pleasure, and accolades for ourselves, our deepest and consuming longing and desire in everything that we say or do, Paul says there in verse 17, which obviously includes loving our wives, is to be for the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ to be exalted. In other words, we're to be so filled and consumed with the love of God in Christ and so filled with thankfulness to the Father through Him that we increasingly overflow with constant and deliberate and Christian love that magnifies Christ, that magnifies Christ. Maybe you remember the, the, really the central and overarching command in the entire letter that Paul says back in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. He says, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, he's talking to believers, those who have come to faith in Christ Jesus the Lord. As you've received him, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. This means our lives are not about us, they're about Christ. And it means our marriages are not about us, they're about Christ It's not about us and what wonderful, great, really neat guys we are. It's about Christ and what an infinite, glorious, sovereign, all-sufficient Savior He is. And we're to so love our wives that He is exalted. Christ is both the pattern and the power for how we are to love our wives. One place where I see this dramatically is in John chapter 13 where Christ's love is so displayed in the upper room just a brief time before he goes to the cross. And listen to what we read there, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 13. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. 
And so what did he do? Verse 2, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon sent to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper. And he had laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. What's he doing? He's loving them constantly. He's loving them deliberately. He's taking the initiative and he's taking the lowest role of a servant to do the most menial, smelly, dirty task of washing their feet. And that physical act that he did was ultimately anticipating the infinitely greater spiritual act that he did when he went to the cross and poured out his blood to cleanse sinful hearts. But you see how that sets the pattern and how it sets the, pa- the, 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 the power of the kind of humble, serving, lowly ways that we are to lead in love if we are to be like Christ and to imitate him. And that's why he says a little bit later there in chapter 13, as I've washed your feet, you need to wash one another's feet. And then a little bit later at the end of the chapter, he makes it very specific when he said, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. So our love is to be a pattern. It's to be a a reflection. It's to be exalting the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder if this event of Jesus washing his disciples' feet was possibly in Paul's mind even when Paul says what he does in Ephesians chapter 5, which is a parallel passage to what we're seeing in Colossians 3, when there in verses 25 to 27, he says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. You see, men, our lives, our marriages are about Christ. And they're about exalting Christ and loving in a constant, deliberate, Christian, Christ-like way so that he's exalted, so that he's exalted. When's the last time you washed your wife's feet? When's the last time that happened? Well, this leads to a fifth way that we see, and this comes out of the negative part of what Paul says back in chapter 3, verse 19, and I would say it this way because this is what he's ultimately implying. Husbands, love your wives gently. Love your wives gently, which is to say tenderly, carefully, sensitively, delicately. Love them gently. Now, again, Paul expresses this by way of a negative. Don't do this. He says, don't be harsh with them. Now, this word that is translated here in the ESV, harsh, it's translated that way also in the NIV. In the King James Version and in the New American Standard Version, that word is translated bitter. And really, both senses are are accurate. They just bring out maybe slightly different aspects in in the English 
But this sense of harshness, this sense of bitterness has to do with not only speaking or acting harshly and roughly toward your wife, but it really carries the sense of an internal, deep-rooted resentment that can be present toward your wife. A deep-rooted resentment that can then explode with wicked and destructive anger. In other words, the sense of harshness, of bitterness here, has to do with a settled and churning resentment, something that can fester days, weeks, months, sometimes even years, sadly. But then just like a powerful volcano, it can erupt and explode all over your wife and many others. The same word that's used in Colossians 3 verse 19 is found in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 15. And there it says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness, there's the word, springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. What an imagery there, right, of a, of a root that is allowed to grow underground, and it just festers and grows, and eventually it springs up and it causes all kinds of trouble. That's the sense of what Paul's talking about. Something that's deep in the heart. The word's also used in Ephesians 4 verse 31. Paul says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice and see how it is there connected with just a cesspool of, of wickedness and of evil. Now, this harshness and this bitterness, and, and, and we know by observation and some by experience that it can be fueled by all kinds of things in relation to your wife. Maybe you have unrealistic expectations and desires for her that aren't being met. Maybe you're selfishly comparing her to other women and you're angry and you're discontent because she's not like them. It could be that you're enslaved to other sins like pornography or other forms of sexual immorality or gambling or just flat out laziness or any other kinds of idolatries. And, and maybe you're enslaved to something there, friend, and you're taking out your sinful anger on your wife. Or maybe your wife has done or, or has not done things, or maybe she has said or has not said things that hurt, annoy, and bother you. Maybe she's put you down to yourself and others. Maybe she's called your decisions into questions. Maybe she hasn't shown you respect and appreciation for ways that you may be trying to love her. And we understand in the nature of relationships, there's all these dynamics, but there's right ways and wrong ways to deal with those things and to respond to those things. Maybe there's a resentment. Maybe there's a bitterness. Maybe there's a harshness because you're just irritated and annoyed with her quirks or with her weaknesses, with her idiosyncrasies and imperfections. But you see, husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. Don't become embittered to them. Just think about how Christ loves and treats you gently and patiently how he's not harsh with or bitter towards you, even in spite of your sin and weaknesses and imperfections. You know, when I read earlier in John 13, 1, that we're told that Jesus loved his disciples to the end, these guys were not very lovable. 
They were weak. They were fearful. They were cowards. They were confused. They were bickering about who's the greatest. They were a mess. Jesus loved them. And he wasn't harsh with them. He spoke the truth to them, but he loved them. He loved them. And I would say here too, husbands, your wife is your wife. She's your wife. In other words, she's not one of the guys. She's not your pet. She's not your toy. She's not your employee. She's not your maid or your slave. She is your wife. And as such, she is a gift from God to you. In spite of all of the aspects of weakness that you might be able to think about, she's a gift from God to you that he's entrusted to you and whom he wants you to love. She's made in the image of God, just like you are. And with you, as Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, you and her together are fellow heirs of the grace of life. And so you are called to love her in a way that points to Christ and exalts Christ. And one day, you're going to present her back to God. So one of the questions becomes, are you ready to give an account for how well you have or haven't loved your wives? Now, we all sin on a regular basis, but when we do, we need to confess that first and foremost to the Lord. And when it's appropriate, to confess to our wives as well and to ask them to pray for us and to help us to continue to be what God wants us to be, but to treat them not harshly, not with bitterness, but with dignity and respect and honor. So husbands, be Christ-like by actively loving your wives and by not being harsh with them. Lead your wives by loving them constantly and deliberately and Christianly and Christ-exaltingly and gently. Now here, of course, is the question that you're probably thinking about throughout all of this. How? How do you do this? This isn't just hard. This is impossible. And indeed it is. Which is why we need the Spirit of God. Which is why we need to be seeking Him and trusting Him and depending on Him. But let me just give you a very practical means by which you can do this. I don't want to just give you a list, even though I gave you a bit of a list earlier, you know, regarding you can do this, do that. Well, that's fine, ultimately. But here's where the real heart of the issue is. And this is what Paul identifies in the letter, in his letter throughout. How do you do this? Here it is. Here's the key. Fix your hope on Christ in heaven. Fix your hope on Christ in heaven. And this really cuts both ways for both husbands and wives. Where do I get this? We'll go back to chapter 1. We'll just look at this briefly and then we'll we'll draw this to a close. Look at chapter 1. I read verses 3 and 4, but let me read it again and include verse 5, okay? He says, very beginning of his letter, Paul does, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. What fuels love? What overflows with love? It's being consumed with the hope that we have in heaven, which is Christ. And that's Paul's whole point throughout the entire letter. Don't let go of Christ. Don't minimize or neglect the sufficiency, the supremacy, the glory, the greatness, the majesty, the love, the power, the goodness, the riches of Christ. 
It's because of the hope that you have in heaven. It's because of Christ. Over in chapter 3, Paul elaborates on this in verses 1 to 4. When he says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's the foundation that ultimately leads to the practical implications of how we're to put off sin and how we're to put on the new person in Christ and then what that means for husbands in loving their wives. It means to count yourself as being raised with Christ, having died with Christ, having your life hidden with Christ in God. It is to fix your hope on Christ in heaven and to dwell on this to pray about this, to preach this to yourself again and again and again. Men, I would ask you, where's your hope today? Don't put your hope in your wife. Don't put your hope in your marriage. Don't put your hope in your job, your abilities, your money, anything else in this earth. Put your hope in Christ and have your hope fixed on Christ. That's the means by which we grow in following Christ and in loving in the way he has called us to love. It's his power. It's his pattern. It's his life. And that's why he wants us to know him and to walk with him. And that's the means by which ultimately we become faithful to do what he calls us to do. I'll just close by saying, husbands, our God-given household authority is delegated, it's limited, and we're accountable. And God didn't give us this authority for our own advantage and the oppression of others. He gave it to us so that we could honor him, so that we could bless others, beginning with our wives and then leading to children if we have children and to others as well, even beyond our family. I want to close with these last words of King David. You don't need to go there, but just write this passage down. 2 Samuel 23, verses 1 to 4. And for every man among us, maybe this could be an anthem that we pray regularly about for our own lives. Because listen what David says here about the life-giving blessing of humble, godly, loving authority. 2 Samuel 23, 1-4. Now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. It says, the spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, here it is. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. May God help us to, to lead in that kind of a way. Let me lead us in prayer. Well, Father, we know that you are the one who leads with purity and with righteousness and with life-giving light. And as you have displayed all of your glory in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for the life that is found through faith in him. May you help all of us as people in general to know you and to walk with you and to share in the fullness of your holy life-giving love and authority. 
and in the particular roles that you've called us to, particularly for any of us who are men who are married, may we be faithful to love our wives in ways that bring honor and glory to you and that bring blessing and life and flourishing to those whom we have involvement with, particularly our wives. Help us in these ways. We thank you for your word in Christ's name. Amen and amen.